Rutgers legendary champions, next generation stars, and tireless ambassadors of the game, sharing their wisdom and guiding your journey to high achievement on the green felt. This is Chasing Poker Greatness with your host, Brad Wilson. Welcome, my friend, to the Chasing Poker Greatness podcast. As always, this is your host, the founder of ChasingPokerGreatness.com, Brad Wilson. And today's guest on the show is Jordan Zucker. Jordan's a high-stakes, mixed-game grinder who is referred to yours truly by his friend and past CPG guest, the nosebleed mixed-game Queen Supreme, Melissa Burr. Jordan and I's wide-ranging conversation will take you from his poker origin story many moons ago to a never-before-covered setting on this podcast, the New York private game scene of yesteryear, and then on to present day where he continues to battle on the green felt. In today's episode, you're going to learn all about Jordan's adventure playing in a massive 100-200 PLO game where winning and losing 100k in a session is a totally realistic thing to happen, how he wishes his past self would have responded to sleazy angle shooters, the horrible, no good, very bad session that ended with Jordan driving home feeling completely numb, and much, much more. So without any further ado, I bring to you a fiery combatant wherever high-stakes mixed games are spread, Jordan Zucker. Jordan, good morning, sir. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Brad. How are you? I'm doing very well. Trying to get my ass in gear this morning. My brain feels like it's a little bit frozen. Even though it's not even really morning. It's 11 a.m., so I don't, I don't know what I'm complaining about. Yeah, I hear you. I've been up since 6.45, so uh, I'm a little bit ahead of you, but I know the feeling. <laughs> yeah, you, you're a real Iron Man. You, you have a, a two-year-old, and, and that will, that'll do it for anybody, I think. That'll do it. That'll do it. Definitely a life changer. So speaking of your life, typically start out this show by asking about your poker story. Could you share with the listener how you got involved with playing cards? Sure. I mean, if you want to go way back, I mean, my dad taught me five card draw when I was a kid. I mean, and I just became obsessed with it to the point where I don't even remember that. I must've been like five years old. Always had like a little bit of gamble in me, but as far as like, let's go back to that five. Like, yeah. so did your dad play poker? Did he play cards? My dad is like the biggest nit ever when it comes to gambling. I mean, he'll play blackjack now and then like on uh, on a vacation and he'll like text me for strategy and, you know, won't double down if he has a big bet, big a quote unquote big bet out there. So no, he's definitely not a poker player. He just knew the game. And I think it was raining at the time at the hotel. And he was like, you know, let me teach, teach my son how to play. Maybe uh, he regretted it at the time because that's all, all I wanted to do. But no, he taught me like five card draw, you know, and, and hand strength and like stuff like that. Why, why did it resonate with you so much? Like, why did it become a thing that like you just, you love doing? I mean, you yeah. said that you didn't remember at five, but I'm assuming at some point you remember actively loving to play cards. 
Yeah, I mean, it all resonated and came back when I was in high school and I was like a junior or senior in high school, 17, 18, playing $1, $2, 50 cent, $1 games in my friend's basement, you know, three nights a week or whatever it was. There must have been something in my head that said, you know, this is something that I enjoy, um, the complexities, um, the intricacies of the game. I enjoyed just besides the fact of, of playing poker and like the camaraderie and, you know, just socialization factor of it. Um, I'm a pretty social outgoing guy. I'm definitely not like an introvert. So, you know, I think there were a lot of factors into how I got into poker. And I, I think those, those basement games quickly turned into bigger private games that I played in in New York which turned into bigger games and bigger games and then um, translated into, you know, mixed games, which I'm primarily playing now um, in casinos. So so transformation from when I was five years old. to (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) From those early days playing in a hotel room when it was raining with your dad. Correct. Uh, Tell me what timeline are we working with when you were 18 what year was that when you first yeah. started playing in those private games? So I'm 34 now. So uh, 2005 was my senior year of high school. So 18 in 2005, which was, that was the poker boom. That was the moneymaker effect. Watching the World Series on TV, you know, definitely having those aspirations of being at a final table and, you know, winning a satellite online to the Bahamas because I couldn't win one. Couldn't win one to Vegas yet. Um, so I remember in high school and college playing those PCA satellites. You know, so just like everyone else my age, um, I think I think that took a huge toll to answer your first question, you know, th- that moneymaker effect and watching those names on TV. And, you know, did you do well in high school? Was your plan to go to college? Did you go to college and get a degree? Yeah. Like how did poker mix with, you know, your... <laughs> ongoing education yeah i um i did i did well enough in high school um and i got into some good colleges i went to university of maryland college park i did not stay very long i definitely had a tough transition in my freshman year how come Um, i think i was one of those kids in high school that didn't have to do any work and then i got to college and realized you had to go to class to do work um and i had a tough time and I had a lot of friends joining like fraternities and that just wasn't my scene at all. You said you were an outgoing guy, but no fraternities. I am. I am on my own terms, if that makes any sense. <laughs> it, 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 it absolutely does make sense. Yes. So yeah, I, um, I transferred to Albany, University at Albany, which is a state school in New York. So a bit closer to home. I had some friends that were already there, you know, and I finished my degree there totally unrelated to math or economics or anything that you would expect. I was a philosophy major. I wanted to go to law school. My father's lawyer. I was going to follow in his footsteps. Philosophy is a good major if you want to be a lawyer. Um, I was a sociology minor, which is kind of like the same thing if you want to be a lawyer. You know, and obviously that didn't pan out. I I took the, I I took uh, the LSATs and it didn't do as well as I expected, and I decided to forego law school. Took a job selling insurance, which was like, I realized very quickly that was not what I wanted to do. 
you know, it was like crack open your high school yearbook and start calling these people to sell them life insurance. And, you know, that was not going to be my future. And I started playing um, some private games in New York City, which where I was living with my wife at the time, um, Potlum in Omaha. And um, it kind of just transpired from there. I realized I can make a lot more money doing that and have a lot more freedom. Had poker been a part of your life through high school to college and then the insurance selling? And what were you doing to you know regularly improve or hone your poker skills? Yeah, I mean, I was playing poker throughout that entire time. I mean, it was different because bankroll management wasn't my um, best suit. I mean, when you're that young, um, you want to play in the biggest games you can because you know there's no real repercussions when you're you know 19 20 21 even yeah, 20 no years no two-year-olds no no there's no two-year-olds definitely not um thank god at the time I had enough on my plate but i was playing i i was playing um online smaller stakes smaller mtts smaller private games trying to your point trying to like hone my skills i mean poker was becoming so aggressive at that time and plo was the new action game and you were getting a lot of people from the no limit world who just wanted to play with four cards and you know i kind of subscribe to the theory that you know the, the more combinations and more more um cards in your hand the more mistakes you're going to make which has some more value in the game and I was playing in some of really, really soft games in New York. And it was there weren't many pros um at that time when I was when I was that young. As I got older, there were definitely some bigger names in the game. But um at that time, no. I mean you were playing with like local business owners and people like that who really were just looking to gamble. How'd you get connected in that underground poker scene? It was easy, man. I mean, I was 18. When I first did it, I I knocked on the door of a place uh, that was called, it was called Oasis. I mean, it was 100 years ago, so I don't think anyone will mind me bringing up <laughs> the name. Um, and you know, the guy said, are you 18 years old? And I said, does it really matter? Um, <laughs> he's like, good point. Um, he let me in. And I was there like every day of the week, my senior year of high school. Um, and they were there while, while I was in college and I would come home from college and play. Uh, they would have like anywhere from a hundred to five hundred dollar rebuy tournaments. Um, they would spread like six or seven one two tables. I've um, always wondered, like, what did what did the inside of like the private New York? Club? It was beautiful. It was nicer than some casino poker rooms I've been in. So you know, and I felt safe. And one of the reasons I think I felt safe is because I knew most of the people there. I mean, you heard these stories. Just not to get too far off track, but like. 15 years ago or whenever it was, there was that killing at the Taj, I believe the Taj or the trap where over a poker seat and the, and the guy stabbed the guy to death in the garage where, you know, I've never heard that story. Yeah. If you Google it, it'll come up. Um, it was over a seat and things came to a head and, you know, obviously the guy wasn't the smartest criminal in the world. There's there's casino cameras everywhere. Um, and the guy died, obviously it's horrific. Um, I mean, and that's in a casino. I mean, so I never really experienced anything like that in a private club. And how many tables are we talking about? Like, so in, we're talking like 
from the biggest clubs I played in, the ones were in New York City, talking like between like or around like 20 tables um, and sometimes going like around the clock. It's um, a lot of tables. There's a lot. I mean, and they're playing, spreading all different games, no limit, fixed limit, mix, um, pot limit. I mean, they're spreading t- tournaments, all different games. You had to show an ID card when you got in. Um, so they were pretty, you know, it was pretty strict, but I did feel safe in clubs that I was playing in. Then, how were you? How, how were you going to school and playing in the club? Like I was coming home. Day. I drove so Albany was. <laughs> it's crazy. Albany was, you know, two. The way I drive, Albany was two and a half hours. It should be about three, but it was about two and a half hour drive. And I would come home on the weekends, and I would just play, you know, and then I would hoof it back to school. Um, definitely hindered me getting my work in um, for school, but at that time. That's what I did. And then, you know, after college, it wasn't that long after college that I started actually living in Manhattan, playing those games. And at that time, all of the big poker clubs that had 20 tables, they shut down. There happened to be a shooting at one of them. Thank God I wasn't there. That kind of shut down that scene. Anybody die? What happened in the shooting? Someone died, a player. And, you know, that was pretty, pretty bad. And, all of those big clubs uh, decided to shut down or were just forced to. Um, and the private games kind of evolved into like a one table in a, you know, one table in a Manhattan high rise apartment, which made more sense. Everything was on credit. There was no cash on hand just in case something happened. And I became accustomed to playing in those games um, pretty often. Those it are did- run a few times a week downside of those when you only have one game running like the rake is going to be the rake was absurd stupid. i mean i was playing in games where um they were pulling purple chips out of the pot i mean there were what's a purple there were five hundred five hundred dollar chips coming out of the out of the pot in you know a hundred hundred plo i mean the the biggest game i played there was like a 100 200 plo no limping allowed um, straddle on the button and like a 5% rake, no, like 500 max or something like that. Jesus Christ. So, I mean, you can't beat the rake. Um, so I was, I would get staked by, um, a good friend of mine who was, I mean, he was willing to stake me in that game and basically eat the rake, which was pretty crazy. Um, and then other times I would play on my own and if it was a smaller game, um, but like you said, when they have one table, you extrapolate that, um, you know, the rake is going to be high. And their their thought is where in Manhattan, there's 8 million people. If you don't like it, we're just going to get somebody else. Yeah, um, we got nine seats to fill. It's not, right. not super tough for them. And they know that it's only going to last so long that, you know, we need to make as much as we can while we, while we can. So, yeah. So the rake was very high. Yes. I, I think commerce has ruined my um, color scheming for chips because the <laughs> chips are all weird. Like commerce is a weird spot, man. Yeah, yeah. That, the yeah. hundreds are whites, and then like the the blue ones are one Ks. I don't even think they have a five hundred dollar chip. The pinks are five Ks. Um, yeah, I mean most places for poker don't even play with a five hundred dollar chip. Like I know if you're playing at parks, you know in Pennsylvania. You're playing like a five five PLO game or a five ten PLO game. You can't even use the, the purple chip. 
because it's undersized. So I guess it can get confused with other chips, like a $5 chip. It's the same size and similar color. I mean, so it's a little weird. It would just, it would be a lot easier if all casinos were just totally uniform um, yeah. with chips. But lots, lots of things would be easier <laughs> in life, but unfortunately they just don't, yeah. just doesn't go that way. But no. um, so, you know, you're playing some, some big private games, right? Some yeah. big private games in New York. Uh, why? I guess tell me about, you know, you said you got married fairly early on. So getting yeah. married and then how that affected, you know, your poker journey. Yeah. So, you know, it's not always easy telling your uh, not just significant other, your fiance or your wife that you're playing poker, um, even though she had known me for a long time, but also your parents and your in-laws. But my decision was my decision. So kind of just ran with it. But like I said, with my wife being from Philly, which was a ways from New York, but not too far, and she was working for a company, um, a big consulting firm, and she wanted to get out of that. And without going into depth, like too, into too much depth, she found a job in Philadelphia. And we said, well, what the hell is the point of paying this outrageous rent in New York for our 600 square foot apartment? Let's move to Philly. We did. I quickly found out that the best games were at parks and Borgata, a half hour away and an hour away. And that totally transformed the games that I was playing in. I mean, not that there weren't big Patlam and Omaha games, but I actually started playing a 75-150 HOE um, game that was kind of like the staple game at parks that ran every Tuesday and ran sometimes on Wednesday, even, even Thursday, you know, and I had a really good year, um, playing in that game where I was basically clueless at first playing fixed limit game. But, and then after that, you know, when we can get into it, but after that, I, how, how'd you find your edge there? If you were clueless, yeah. how, how did you have a winning year? And I can see that like, yeah, you know, you are now 30 minutes away from like a legitimate regulated casino where they're not doing the silly 5% uncapped type thing. So I can see that poker becomes much more appealing for you. Sure. I mean, and I, as far as edge, I mean, that's part of it. The rake is definitely part of it. Um, I hate like what, what's sad is I get so many questions about like online poker rake and, and my answer is always like, I don't know. I've never even like looked at it. Like I just play and make decisions and like pay the rate, right? It's never like a major factor, but I know <laughs> in those games, oh, shit, shit gets real, real people fast. Are, people are nickel and diamond like crazy in that game over the rake. I mean, which to me was crazy at the time because I was used to paying this exorbitant rake. And now I'm, pay I'm paying $7 a half. <laughs> um, I'm like, please take my money. I mean, yeah. you know, whatever. And, and half the time, I'm not even really paying because we're doing time pots. So, you know, that was part of it was the rake. And like, I agree with you. Like you said, I don't really even look at it. But when you factor into your hourly, I mean, it does make a difference, especially when you're. When I know somebody that's running a game and they tell me that they can cut like 15 to 20K a night. Yeah. I, I realize, yeah, <laughs> that's a pretty big fucking deal. Right. <laughs> that's yeah. a pretty big factor. <laughs> Yeah, it's a big deal, especially in those games where you'll probably find like one or one or two winners. I mean, so I was happy to pay a very small rake. 
playing Hold'em, Omaha 8 or Better, and Study 8 or Better, which were all games that I knew. And that this is actually when I met Melissa. Melissa Burr, yeah. She helped me a bit kind of in that transition. I'm like a high-variance guy. and What do you mean by or, that? I mean, with, with PLO, um, I wasn't very conservative. I would take like any edge I could get. I mean... 55, 45, 52, 48. It is what it is. Like we're, we're playing for the whole pot. Yeah. That's um, why we play poker, right? Right. Exactly. So um, it was weird switching to limit, you know, like I found that the games were, were a little like tight at first. Um, then I realized people were just playing differently. And I think I was able to exploit um, some timidness at the table People scared to put in an extra bet here and there. Although there was some like really loose, juicy action in that game. But I was able to take a lot of money off the table in like a year or two um, before that game kind of slowed down um, and before I jumped up in stakes. I also, I think I enjoyed it more and the game moved so much quicker. I mean, No Limit Hold'em or Pot Limit Omaha, there's so much tanking. There's so much waiting. There's so much Hollywooding. Not to say it's not warranted sometimes, but it can be pretty, I'm sure you know, it can be pretty brutal. That's why I don't play tournaments ever. Yeah. <laughs> and I have a lot of friends that play tournaments and play like the whole circuit. And and I'm just like, I don't know how you guys do this. Um, I play like one tournament when, when it's like close to the bubble and like people are like, I'm just like glaring at them the whole time. Like, what the fuck are we like? We're going right. to play what are poker. Doing? What are yeah. we doing? Like, right. Right, 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 right. And I mean, and I've been in a position where like I've been tank check raised, which is like the worst thing in the world, you know, and then I snap fold. Like my cards are in the muck so quick. Like let's play the next hand. So, you know, there, uh, I liked that the game moved quicker and people made decisions like very decisively, you know, and their decisions were almost made beforehand. Yeah. Um, so I became a much bigger fan of limit poker. At that point. And, and tell me, how did you meet Melissa? How did y'all become friends? And then how did she help you out in your mixed game career? Sure. So we had a lot of mutual friends. Like, us, you know, there's the West Coast poker Vegas circle and there's the East Coast Borgata kind of poker circle. We had a lot of mutual friends. And once I started playing in that game, there would be days where we were sitting next to each other for hours on end. And I found that she was just one of the good good guys or good girls in poker. Um, there's obviously a lot of unsavory people when you're in the gambling world. Um, and Melissa, I thought was pretty genuine and generous. And, you know, she wasn't screaming and berating dealers and berating other players. And I knew she was actually a very good player beyond that. So that's how we met. We just became friends. And we would play in the same games often. But when it came to bumping up the stakes and playing mixed games, you know, I wouldn't say she coached me or anything, but there would be spots where, she, you know, you, Jordan, you don't want to do that in the future. Or maybe you want to pitch this card um, instead of that. Um, I, in particular in games like Bedusi and Bedesi and stuff like that, where you're just learning the game. You know, in game selection, too, she'd been around for much longer than me um, as far as mixed games are concerned. So, you know, if she thought a game was not profitable, she would tell me. Um, why, why do you think she she would go out of her way to, to help you out like that? Because I, I understand, like, you know, 
poker poker's brutal cutthroat type environment for the most part or that's how lots of people view it and yeah. it, it is not surprising to me that she helped you and, and did you those solids right it's, because i i think that poker the poker community is one of the most misunderstood communities in the universe and that like the people who are good genuinely look out for one another even when it, it's not in their best interest to do so which to me is just it's something that I love about this world um, as it relates to the good guys. But uh, yeah, I mean, I agree with you. I, I think um, it's definitely a misunderstood business or, or world where, you know, people are like, well, how are you playing hours on end against people that you're friends with? And, you know, what if you win a big pot against them? How does that work? And so on and so forth. I think the reason that she took a liking to me and I was happy to be friends with her was just that one, she's a genuinely good person, which is not always easy to say about everybody. Um, and two, Melissa, I think, is in it for the long haul. I don't think she's looking for any short angles on people. So if she sees someone that she becomes friends with, she knows if she like tells me to do the wrong thing or puts me in like a predatory game or a predatory spot, you know, and we lose our friendship over that. I think she'll lose more sleep over that. You know what I mean? Than, than her making a few extra dollars, adding to her to her hourly, which I'm sure she keeps meticulously. <laughs> um, so, you know, I think she looks at it that way. Um, and a lot of other people don't. I mean, a lot of other people, if if they're like, well, this kid just started playing 150, 300 mix or 200, 400 mix. Let's get him in every single game possible and just extract as many bets out as possible. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I remember, and and this isn't this isn't a shot at anyone. This was my decision to play in this game. What used to be Sugar House Casino, which is now Rivers, I decided to play in a 200, 400 mix game with like it had like one big bet game and it had like big O with a 4k cap. So it was pretty big. And the, the lineup was like Matt Glantz, Ryan Miller, Paul Volpe, Mark Herm. I had no shot in that game. Easy game. Uh, yeah. Easy um, game. That was like the lineup. <laughs> um, I'm, I, I've played with those guys and I'm friends with them, you know, but I, I had no shot in that game. It was, it was like the third time I've ever played mix in my life. And I think I lost like 10k or something in that game. And you know, he probably doesn't remember this, but I texted Paul Volpe and I said, like, you know, what did you think of my game? Whatever, because I felt like I couldn't beat him in a hand. It, it was like he was reading my soul. And he was like, the only way to learn is to get thrown into the fire, which if you have the bankroll, which I did at the time, and you know, it was okay to play in that game. I, you know, I took a beating, but I think it was worth it, to be honest, because when I went back and started playing the 150-300 game, at parks, you know, and even at Borgata, I felt more confident um, and felt like, you know, I didn't feel like I was walking on eggshells. Yeah. Just it, interesting. It's something that I think poker players don't think enough about is that if you play a hand poorly, right, where you're kind of in over your head, the skill levels above where you're at, the lessons that you can learn, even though you lose money, you still learn lessons based on that experience. And if you're someone who can reflect and try to extract the wisdom and the knowledge from those experiences, 
and take that with you moving forward, the money that you lose will come back. Like it's worth paying that price um, in the long run if you're able to learn. If you're not able to learn and you don't think about it twice, well, <laughs> ultimately it's not going to be that beneficial. But like there's always the opportunity, you know, when you play a hand poorly or play against somebody that's playing at a higher level than you and you know that you don't have an edge in the game to learn from that experience and use that in the future. And I just think that like people are very averse to, you know, very averse to making those types of, you know, quote unquote, short-term mistakes. But I think the long-term upside is very high. Yeah. I mean, I'd agree. I think the arrogance plays a huge factor in it as well. Um, I mean, especially in poker, everyone always thinks they have an edge. Um, And, you know, I, I think, I 100% agree that um, that you can make that money back even you know tenfold in in those spots, but I think it's I think it's more of a mental and psychological thing. Oh, for sure. You, right. I mean that that's such a big part of the game where you realize like especially in in limit poker becomes interesting because you're talking in units and 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 um, and bets. And in those spots, and it's like, all right, well, I missed a bet here. Um, could I have played the hand differently? I mean, obviously that applies to no limit as well. Um, it's just easier to like quantify in in limit, I think. For sure. Um, easier yeah. to prove too. Like <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's definitely easier to prove. I mean, and, and the spots are more obvious. Um there's and there's le- there's less ways to play a hand um than you would in let's say like no limit. I played the I played the 2K six max no limit ring event on WSOP the other night, and I had a good result. I finished seventh, and I got it in good. Ace eight against Ace deuce, and he spiked the deuce on the flop, um, and I would have had a, a pretty nice stack um, going into a final table. But just playing that event, it was interesting to just remember how many different lines there are to take in these games. I mean. Like king queen suited, I flopped top two on a two flush board, and my buddy was like, "You should check." And I'm like, just so used to just hammering that 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 board, so it just shows like the disparity between the two games. Um, There's a big difference when you can make <laughs> one bet and then a spectrum of different sizes with your with your bets. Correct, correct, yeah. So you know. I just I had fun playing that tournament though. It kind of like brought me back to like the no limit um, days of playing online. So even though I took a bad beat to get knocked out right before a final table, you know, to have like a decent cash, it's good. So cool, man! Almost made the the final table. You you got seventh. Um, <laughs> seventh. <laughs> yeah. Tell me, six would, have been, six would have been better, but seventh is okay. If you would have got six, fifth would have been better. Like that's just that's yeah. the nature of uh poker tournaments if you get second guess what you feel like shit because first would have been much better than second you know correct yeah yep jason tell me about presence why did you think presence was the missing weapon in the arsenal of poker players so everyone's a mindset champion when they're running great right but when you're getting crushed day after day and you haven't booked a win in forever and the confidence just gone and you're trying to do this thing that you read about in a book or someone told you about being logical and being happy that the money went in good when all you really want to do is cry and hit something at the same time. 
Like, how are you supposed to be logical in that moment? But that's the only moment when you really need it. What you need in that moment isn't mindset. You've already read all the mindset books and you already know what you're supposed to think and what you're supposed to do. What you actually need in that moment is presence. Presence is the ability to connect the dots between who you want to be and how you can actually be that person when you need it most. So let's cut to the chase, right? Like, how do you do it? How do you stay more present when you're at the poker table? Well, you get there by first deciding that you want more, right? That you want to grow your intuition, that you want to create more flow in your life, and that you want to reach your full potential as a player and as a person. And once you get there, you can start trying out some of the exercises and practices that I've put together. If it feels good, if you're enjoying it, you can keep going. Right? And if you keep going long enough, eventually you'll find that you're just playing at really high levels, that you feel good with low stress, and you're enjoying your experience a lot more. Not just at the table, but away from it as well. I personally would love to have as much presence as I possibly can in my day-to-day life. And if you, the listener, right now wants to add some presence to your game, visit pokerwithpresence.com. Join Jason Sue's email newsletter and then schedule a free consult with the master of presence himself. One more time, that's pokerwithpresence.com. So your poker career after transitioning out of college, is poker all that you've done in the ensuing decade or so? I've gotten involved in a lot of things, um, real estate in the Philadelphia area. I own a bunch of properties there, um, rental properties, just involved in the market, like kind of like everybody else is these days. I just invested um, in a startup company called Eternally. They help provide people that don't have like, let's say, a healthcare proxy or you know, living will and trust and things like that um, when they're in a tough situation in the hospital. So a shameless plug there. Um, but they're just in the beginning stages. So I'm trying to do some stuff like that. Yeah, just, um, just in case you're listening and you're sick and in a hospital right now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Those are the, That's the clientele. So there you go. Um, so, you know, and, and honestly, the fact is I have a wife and a two-year-old daughter like we talked about and i'm trying to spend as much time as i can with them you know and i was never someone to play marathon sessions um if you ask anybody that knows me i would be playing till like seven o'clock um like 8 a.m to 7 7 p.m and then i would just get in the car and drive home because i just wanted to be home um 11 hours is not a short session. Like, it's not a short session, but those people, the people in that, in those games were playing all night. I mean, that game would run until the next morning. It was crazy. Um, yeah. Like when I was playing no limit um, at commerce in, in the high stakes room, there were all like the same limit players. It like were frozen in their seat. It, it felt like, like I was playing <laughs> 60 hours a week and they were always there when I was playing and I was like, holy shit, like these guys just play so freaking much. Like they play, they play forever. I mean, and it's about how you allocate those 60 hours. Right. I mean, so the, the, um, I think playing like two marathon marathon sessions a week, like is crazy. Like, I mean, I I would go nuts. I'd go out of my mind. My wife would kill me. Um, hey, <laughs> you, you could always just bring her, right? I, I remember the commerce. There was this kid that he he played the limit, and like his girlfriend sat behind him, 
every day for every session. Like she had <laughs> yeah. to be, she would, yeah. she had to be my, sitting there like 60 hours a week. My wife wouldn't be having that. Um, but yeah, I, I've seen that. I've, I've, you know, I've seen it all. I mean, people, people want to play It's but in those limit games for whatever reason, they just want to keep playing. Um, and what's crazy is like, if you get buried like X amount of bets, you know, people in the game for like 30, 40,000, and then they're playing like the next morning. It's not like you can just like find a marginal spot to shove it all in like a PLO game or a no limit game. Like you have to grind out those bets. I mean, so it's really sick, really sick sometimes watching that stuff. Um, and those were actually some spots where there was a lot of money to be won. I mean, there was like a Tuesday game that would go all night and then I'd be fresh and ready to go Wednesday morning. And I would just come in and like pick up a few pots and then the game would break. <laughs> yeah, of course. Like the, the, you have such an edge when you wake up at like 7 AM, you, you get there at eight and there's a holdover from the night before with like yeah. half the tables sleep deprived or half drunk. It's yeah, like, there's, there's empty racks and bottles all over the place. Then like, you know, you're in a good spot. Yeah, like it doesn't matter who who these people are. Like you just have an edge. Um, yeah, I've never been. I've never been the marathon type all night player either. I think my longest session was something like twenty one hours or something around that, and I was absolutely miserable by the end. Like just out of my mind. Like was I, it winning, was it a winning session? I don't even remember to be honest. Right. Like yeah. I, yeah. I know one of the times for sure was a winning session. Because there was like a reason the game was going all night long for like 20 hours. And that was for sure a really good night. But otherwise, I, I can't even remember whether I won or lost. I just know I was miserable. Like <laughs> when, I, when I was yeah. going home, hours I was miserable. In, 21 hours in a poker room can do that to you. you know. And there's also probably a lot of other miserable people around you at the time, which doesn't help. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, it's it's not a not a good experience. Um, so, have a couple of couple of new questions that I'm going to test out on you. You get to be get to be the guinea pig. So guinea pig, okay. congratulations. Um, <laughs> so, typically I zoom out and dive into the macro. You know, the overview of your poker journey, which we have done that. But I'd like to ask you specifically um, if you have a story about your favorite session ever. Or if, you know, a memorable session springs to mind, if you could tell me about that. My favorite session, I think, which was back before I moved down here was, and this just comes to mind because it was, it was that big PLO game that we spoke about before, 100, 200, no limping, PLO. What I forgot to mention was that it was PLO, two rounds of PLO and one round of no limit stud eight um, with an Annie on the button. It was a monster game that made no sense. Um, Nick Shulman, I, Nick Shulman was in the game. Um, I remember. And that was a game where you could win a hundred thousand in that game. Um, this regardless of the rake, it was in this like beautiful apartment above the Russian tea room in New York. It was like, it was like a miniature Molly's game. Um, even though the stakes were, were fairly high. And there were just a lot of like, I was running like God, I guess you could say, in that game. I mean, um, it was like, 
in stud. It was just like seven small cards and just hit a free roll. Like that's what was happening. And in PLO, it was just like nuts for a second best the entire time. And um, I felt after like playing in that game and having like a significant win, I was like, well, if I can have this type of win and beat this type of rake. Do, do you mind saying the, the specific? What, what, what was the win? I'm guessing six figures. Yeah, it was like it was like a hundred k win. Um, it's a good night. And yeah, it was it was crazy. Um, you know, and I don't know how long that game went for because I didn't really play in it much after that. Um, they were also pretty specific about like who they wanted in that game and who they didn't want in that game. Surprised to see Nick Schulman in that game <laughs> um, in a private game like that. You know, obviously his money and credit is good. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, who knows? He, he could have been being backed by the people running it. Like they could have been taking percentage of the action, you know? Could have been, yeah. Could have been any of those, any of those things. Um, that was the first time I met him. He was a super nice guy. But yeah, I mean, as far, I, I that session just stands out because it was just the hardest like win. Um, How did it feel like seeing those mountains of chips in front of you and just being in God mode? Yeah, I mean, it, it was cool. I was a bit younger, so I was a bit less humble. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the humility wasn't like, you know, whatever. Your strongest um, trait? Yeah, it wasn't my strongest trait. still isn't. But, um, you know, just having, uh, seeing like those type of chips for the first time and playing those type of pots for the first time. I'll be honest, like it's pretty scary when you're playing against guys who only run it once in you know 20k pots and you're like you know a 52 48 favorite or in stud when you're you have no idea what people are doing because you're playing no limit stud (laughs) it's not even a real game just just a made-up game to juice up the juice up the action you know so i wasn't used to that but after you win a few pots and you build up a stack i mean you start to feel more comfortable in the room and it's like all right now i can like sit back and, and get going rather than like walking on eggshells playing in this type of game. How did you get into that game in the first place? Like what was your bankroll like? You were just like, had just a friend, taking had a, a friend. Shot? Yeah. Had a friend and I um, had a f- friend that was willing to take a shot with me in that game. Um, so yeah, I didn't walk away with all of it, um, yeah. but yeah, that's basically how I get in. It's just like a friend of a friend. And, you know, there's if there's only so many people that they're willing to take that can vouch for that type of money. So when I did, like, you know, they were like, yeah, sure, come by. And you just got to play X amount of hours. And, you know, and I was kind of shocked when they were like, hey, you can't limp. They didn't want people, they didn't want people like back, back raising with aces and doing things like that in Palomonoma. It was just like, um, funny stuff like that and no limit study like things like that 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 wouldn't fly any anywhere um but they made the rules that that, that's just what the game was they fly there because they're they're the ones running the show right yeah if you you want a seat then you better agree to it or or not so yeah why why not just say no raising pre-flop like just you have mandatory limp then that way there's no back raising I'm, right. You could, you could do that. And that could make more sense. Honestly. Um, I think that'd be a pretty cool game. Like it'd be, uh, I would be weird. That. I mean, when we play big, when we play big O, 
um, with like with a cap, it's almost like half the hands are limped. People just want to see flops, mm-hmm. and the game plays great. Like I love it like that. Um, there's nothing wrong with limping for fifty or a hundred dollars, um, seeing a flop for you know seven hundred. But you know, in this game, I think they just knew people were gonna just jack it up like every hand, um, no matter what. People were raising yeah. every every single hand. So, <laughs> so let's it was, get it in there. Yeah, it was crazy. Um, so. so I have the opposite of this question. So we have your favorite session, cashing yeah. out the hundred k. Yeah, least favorite session. Oh man, <laughs> it's just like every poker player remembers all their bad beats, right? Uh, I think it's human beings, right? Like <laughs> we we have the negativity bias where like the times where we get smashed stand yeah. out. Yeah, it was definitely it's definitely at a, a casino session, and I think it's what kind of what we talked about before. I remember playing a seventy five one fifty game where you know I'm typically buying in for like five k. And like that clip was gone like so fast. And then it was down to like 10, 15. And I was like, before I knew it, I was in the game for 20. And I like think I was in the game for 30 and like built it back up to like 20, which should be like your stop loss, like right there. Like in that game, like even though there were a lot of chips on the table, a lot of them were mine. So <laughs> <laughs> um, they all had uh yeah, the same origin point. Yeah, exactly. They all started in the same pocket. So, and then I just remember like proceeding to lose like every hand in a row. Like it, it was just like an endless barrage of bad beats and like, not, again, like nuts for a second best or just hands that you can't fold or just, you know, things like that um, going over and over again. And I think I, I cashed out like down, like down like 15 or 18 K or something like that. and it was late and it, you know, that feeling like driving home and you, you get, you're thinking about every hand in the car, um, what I could have done differently. Um, all the bad beats, you know, every mistake and you get home and then it's like, well, my wife's like, Oh, well, how did you do? <laughs> it's like things like that. And I'm just like, Oh, let's just go to sleep. <laughs> You know, so everybody has like these horrible sessions and obviously any poker player that tells you that they, they've never had a horrible session is lying, but you know, it depends to which degree, but yeah, I just, in in general, I just remember, I just remember the car ride. Like what were you feeling in the car ride? I, I think it was just like a numbness type of feeling like. Oh, like I just played for so long. Like I could have been so much more productive <laughs> doing like anything else. Like, why didn't I just play like two clips and like lose 10K and just go and like head back home? But, you know, obviously can't change the past. But that's definitely what I was feeling was like just a feeling of regret. Yeah. And, and tilt. I mean, you go on like life tilt where, you know, thankfully I'm, I've, a pretty good driver i'm not like driving off the road or anything but um you know that hour drive back or whatever it was you know is brutal um and then trying to sleep and go through it i mean i think those are the things that like any poker player can relate to you know so. for, for sure i i could tell you like what i used to think when i was going to sleep after my horrible sessions and it's kind of funny thinking back on it now as like a 22 or 23 year old kid i used to think like 
doesn't matter how successful you are in life. All the successful people also have to sleep just like me. So it's okay. Like in this moment, when I go, go to bed, I'm just like Bill Gates. So <laughs> let's, yeah. let's, let's enjoy this time asleep um, before I have to wake up and then <laughs> come to grips with um, the reality of how awful yesterday was. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think everybody can relate to that in the poker world. So, I mean, I think you have to live it to really know how it feels. Um, but you know, it can be pretty brutal, but to stay, it's, it's just a testament to be able, being able to stay on even keel. Right. So, um, the highs are highs, the lows are lows. I mean, that's, yeah. that's the life. Yeah. And it's nice if you can lie somewhere in the middle, um, that would be good. That's always good. Um, most people can't. Yeah. Human biology doesn't really allow to live right in the middle. You know, it's just not how we're wired. Yeah, no, I, I agree. Um, I think like you said, if you finish six, you want to finish fifth. If you finish second, you want to finish first. It's just natural like inclination. Yeah. You you finish first. You ask why it couldn't have happened in a bigger buy-in tournament. Like it's just (laughs) like, (laughs) it's very hard to be satisfied. Right. Yeah. I mean, in some of the biggest pots I've won or like or, or biggest hands that I've made or biggest pots relative to the game have been in smaller games. And then like, I'll play like a bigger game and I'll like run like shit. And I'm like, man, like, why, why couldn't I make those hands in this game? Like, you know, what's going on? So, you know, there's like, there's that <laughs> where you just kind of feel like shit after playing like a long session and you just want to go home and take a shower and just skip to the next day yeah i mean uh, i think this is where like wisdom and experience comes comes into play because at least in my case i, I try not to I, I don't think i've been like that for many years where it's like you know i just play and try to let it go like i i remember as a young poker player like i remember every single hand that i played and i could tell you how the people looked, exactly how they put their chips in the pot, um, the yeah. entire situation in great detail. And now I play a session and like I can't even remember what happened yesterday or two hours ago. It's just like at some point my brain realized like uh, we don't need to keep this information anymore. <laughs> and like it just goes out of my brain. Um, I don't get caught in those loops, but yeah, man, it, it it's it's poker, right? Like I, I think it, that numbness you spoke about, that's probably the best way to describe it. You're just numb. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a hard feeling to describe, but that's the best way that I can really think of. Anybody that has experienced it knows exactly. Right. They know what it is. Right. <laughs> they know the feeling. Look, I totally get it. You feel like being a lone wolf in your poker journey has hamstrung your ability to realize your full potential. So I'm about to give you a golden opportunity to plug into a supportive tribe that will be the poker family you've always wished you had. How much money would you give for one hour of interactive group coaching led by myself, Coach Thomas, and occasionally past guests of the Chasing Poker Greatness podcast? For now, and this will absolutely change at some point in the near future, the price of admission to the Live Poker Power Hour is 100% free. All you've got to do to get your invite is head to ChasingPokerGreatness.com and hop on the VIP newsletter. No more excuses, no more procrastination. It's time to take action 
and put yourself in position to turn your poker dreams into reality. I hope to see that beautiful face of yours in just a couple of days. So could you tell me about a poker lesson you've learned from a dark teacher? And by dark teacher, I mean, you know, bad experience could be a person, could be a situation. Yeah. I mean, I, let's see, a dark teacher. That's a good way of putting it. Um, I think playing in games, I mean, and this isn't like a, a one particular situation, but um, just to avoid the tilt factor, right? There's so many things that you have to do. And I think there's players that needle you in different ways. And, you know, whether it's, you know, taking like a swipe at you personally, or which obviously is like totally uncalled for, or, you know, angling you at the table, I mean, or things like that. I would say the latter is like, like the angle part for me. I mean, so in limit poker, there have been people that have been known to like take their last bet back. Tell me, how, how does it go down? Like what's an example of somebody shooting an angle in limit? So poker? you're playing, you're playing a study pot, right? And you have the guy scooped and you bet and he kind of cry calls the river and he puts in his chips and all your chips are in front of you, right? Like it's not like no limit where they're pulled into the pot. And as he puts those chips out there and he pushes the other chips forward, he pulls the other chips, the last bet back. I've been in that situation multiple times where I've seen that happen. I've done it personally by accident. I've never done it on purpose, but there's certainly people who do it on purpose. It's it's like a standard limit angle. I mean, it's blatant cheating and robbing. It's not even just an angle. And, you know, my lesson learned was to watch out for that rather than to let it happen and go nuts like afterwards. And cause, how do you know afterwards? Like, how, how do you, I mean, you just count the pot and in your head and you're just like, well, this, this pot's like one bet short and like, where could it have gone? Like, you know, so didn't go in the rake. It's a casino game. So like, it's gotta be behind this guy's stack. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it, it's, and the good thing is like, I've had people say to me like, Hey, watch out for this guy. Like, he'll do that to you, especially if he doesn't know you. So, you know, I guess that's like, maybe that doesn't answer your question perfectly, but you know, if, if someone is looking to angle and someone gives me like a little tip and says like, Hey, um, you know, this guy's prone to doing this, you know, you're better off just being careful, making sure the dealer's pulling in the bets and so on and so forth, rather than, letting it happen and then just going nuts and um, letting it, letting it determine the outcome of your entire session. Yeah. I mean, I've just seen that happen. I've seen that, that argument at the table happen like over and over and over again. And if the person would have just said it like the first time, I mean, there's, there's something to be said for standing up for yourself. No one wants to get for standing up for yourself. No one wants to get robbed um, in a game like that. Um, But you know, it doesn't need to go, you know, it doesn't need to go into like full argument mode, which I've definitely gotten into with people like every other poker 
player, you know, it's just, it's inevitable. Um, It's just better to be proactive than reactive. I think that's what I'm trying to say really is being reactive in poker can it like almost never ends well. No, you, you, you might get your big bet, but you've flared your emotions and now you're emotionally compromised. Your decision-making ability drops and you're playing worse and getting that bet back actually costs you money over right. the length of your session. Plus you have a bad taste in your mouth when you cash out. I mean, it just spirals into a lot of negative things. Yeah. There's just awkwardness at the table and just like, it's- yeah, because <laughs> Dude in front of you probably doesn't want to be like outed as an angle shooter in front of in this social environment. And yeah, there's a lot of, a lot of bad things. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I'm not trying to let angle shooters off the hook, but you know, there's like a, a way to handle it and a way not to handle it. Um, you know, and I think watching some seasoned poker players that have been playing a lot longer than me, watching them deal with it, and can maybe confront the dealer um, or the floor rather than just going nuts um, is obviously the right way to do it. Cause you know, there's just like nothing to be gained, like you said, by being like totally reactive. What happens in that instance when the floor decides or the dealer realizes that somebody has done that, do they get a penalty? That, that particular instance, like if someone just takes a bet back, I mean, you'll just check the camera. And if they they get kicked out, will the player get kicked out? It's hard to kick someone out because it's really hard to prove that they didn't on purpose. Mm. But I mean, I think if you, if, if it's done enough, then yeah, you'll get kicked out. If, if it's shown on the video that like you, that it's blatant, I mean, I would imagine you would get like a pretty severe warning. Mm -hmm. Uh, But again, like it's pretty hard to prove that. So that's kind of why it's like a common angle in limit poker. Um, Yeah. That's the best bluffs, right? The best bluffs, they're rooted in some sort of believability. Right, yeah, there's got to be some type of uh, truth, right? So, So what's a purchase you've made in the last year that's been impactful to your poker game? That's it. That's been impactful to my poker game? I mean, I've made a lot of purchases that have not been impactful (laughs) to my poker game. I I don't know. I don't know if it's a purchase. Uh, A friend of mine is a tournament poker player who's taken lessons from probably some of the guys that you've had on your podcast as well. And in the tournaments that I've played and the tournaments that I've watched him in um, where he's had some significant success, um, we've gone over those hands. It's almost like, I'm not trying to round about your question here. It's almost like I've taken like taken like a lesson with with him because it's such a different strategy than I'm used to playing. I mean, he actually took lessons from two different people. And one of them was really all about getting every chip on the table. And the other guy was more about survival. And this is one of my best friends that we're talking about. So we would talk often about the hands and it would come into play in cash games. I mean, I don't really play a lot of tournaments, but it would come into play in cash games, like looking for, um, another another spot you know this isn't the right place to three barrel here you know um things like that so i'm not one to like purchase um let's say books or take lessons like myself could be a gym membership you know well that, (laughs) that was the other thing so here's the thing i 
I have um, like a small little like workout gym space in my house that my wife uses religiously. It's funny you say that because I was literally thinking the exact same thing. And I'm like not a workout guy at all. And it's terrible because I'm 34 now. I'm not getting any younger. So I recently just told myself like I'm going to work out like three days a week, even if it's like 20 minutes on the treadmill for those days, just like for my own psychological health. Because clearly 20 minutes on the treadmill isn't going to make a huge difference. Um, but I feel like when it comes to poker um, and keeping my mind fresh, that would be it. So if I had this, if I had to nail it down to a purchase, let's call it the Peloton, right? So I do have a Peloton that my wife bought. Um, and I think I have the shoes for it. <laughs> um, but I I would like to like really start getting into that. I think, I think there's something to be said for if you're, let's say if you're at the Rio over the summer, obviously for the exception of this past summer, um, you see these guys like, like half of these poker players are like jacked and like eating healthy and like just living life differently. Pretty big disparity between the way things used to be and how they are, how they are now. As it turns out, when your physical body is stronger, your brain works better as well. <laughs> like, yeah. who would have thought? Yeah, I mean, the correlation is there. Um, you know, I think any like psychiatrist or psychologist or even any like primary care physician probably tell you that, you know, the first thing they always ask you is like, do you exercise? You know, and it's like, oh, shit. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, that's like eating healthier and, you know, and exercising and like, purchasing something like a Peloton, I think goes a long way. So that's something I'm going to tr really try to like commit myself to. Um, and I'm the type of guy that like, it takes me some time, but like when I actually decide that I'm going to do something, I do run with it. So um, no pun intended. So like, I will, I will um, like strive to do that. So let's call the purchase, the purchase, a, um, an exercise bike. Sure. Perfect. What would you consider a weakness in your poker game and what steps have you taken to overcome said weakness? I think in limit poker, I play a bit too many hands. I like to be involved in a lot of pots. I mean, that's just, obviously you're going to have tighter and looser players. I would probably be labeled as a looser player, but my starting hand range probably needs to um, be narrowed down. And like people have told me that, um, and I've told myself that, um, but I think that's like an arrogance thing too, you know, it's like, well, I can play this marginal hand and I'll outplay them on, on fourth street or fifth street or sixth street, whatever. But, um, at the end of the day, like if you're raising, I'm just saying like, if you're going to raise under the gun in like a, a Badoogie game, like you better have like a pretty good three card hand, um, at best, I mean, at, at worst. So like the, you know, seven deuce threes, um, I need to probably let those go more often and, you know, things like that and limit and mix games. Why do you um, think you, why do you think you have such a problem? Why do they get so sticky in your fingers? Part of it's probably an, ex an experience of not playing for the amount of years that other people have, have played the other part is definitely wanting the action, but um, 
knowing it's weird, like not to get too technical, but like knowing that you're drawing to like a seven Badoogie, which is a good hand. Like it doesn't necessarily mean you have to play that starting hand. So in that early position, um, but if you forget the latter and you only think of reformer, it's just like, well, you know, you need to put both of those together to have winning sessions unless you just want to get lucky. And I think that's also part of it. And the last thing I was going to say was deviating is another thing. I mean, you don't want to deviate from your strategy too much. I mean, mixing it up is obviously okay. But, you know, if I go on a run on a heater, um, there's no reason to just start playing bad hands. And I'll find myself doing that sometimes. And I'm not, I'm not like getting in there with nothing. Um, but, it's just fringe. It's like, yeah, fringe starts to look better sometimes. You just yeah want to want to want to get in there. Yeah, you want to get in there. It's fringe is like a good way to put it for sure. Um, cool, man. Uh, we're gonna move to some lightning round questions, and we'll okay. we'll wrap this guy up. All right, I'll do my best. If you could gift all poker players one book to read, it doesn't have to necessarily be about poker. What would it be, and why? I would say never get a real job. Um, it's a great book. Um, just about exactly what it says about being your own boss. And uh, this, yeah. this is something that matters to you, right? This autonomy, the freedom. Uh, yeah, I couldn't, I could not work for anybody. Um, you know, I definitely need the freedom. So yeah, that definitely works for me to say the least. Anti-authority too. I think this is a big, <laughs> like when you're when you're writing down the traits of poker players, I think these traits are very very common. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I don't think any poker player wants like a standard nine to five job. No, that that's why they play poker. <laughs> that's that's probably why <laughs> why they immerse themselves to uh, into this game and deal with all the bullshit that they deal with, right? Because to right. avoid that very thing, for sure. If you could wave a magic wand and change one thing about poker, what would it be? It's an easy one for me. The treatment of the dealers at the casino, it drives me nuts. It's my biggest pet peeve. Anyone that knows me knows that I, I can't stand it. I think there's, if I could wave a magic wand and say, treat these people like they're people who are working like tirelessly to run this game, then that's what I would do. Um, I understand that there's certain dealers that don't put in the amount of effort that maybe they should. Um, and they deserve a little like talking to now and then, but berating them to no end is only going to make it worse. It's just not the right thing to do. And it's only going to cause more mistakes. It's just, if imagine being in that spot, playing in a high limit game, dealing a high limit game and, you know, people are berating you over a mistake after, and then you're just going to make another one and another one and another one. Yeah, you're you're nervous. You're scared. You're full of anxiety. It's not yeah. not a good place to be in. And for the love of God, if a listener's sitting there, like, just don't blame somebody else for your problems and for your bad beats and the things that go wrong while you're playing poker. Like, ultimately, you're there. You're responsible. There's like nobody is <laughs> no dealer is like out to get you. Um, right. You know, and, and just understand that like they're just the 
mechanism in which we play cards and, and like yeah. they, they, they don't deserve any responsibility for any of the results. No. And, and even if they do something like flip a card over um, or whatever, I mean, it's not like they mean to do it. You know what I mean? It's just total. It's an accident. Mistakes so, happen. Like mistake. Yeah. Welcome to humanity. There um, you go. If you could erect a billboard, every poker player's got to drive past on the way to the casino. What's it say? What's that gambling hotline number? I forgot. <laughs> <laughs> Be gamble aware. The, that's all. Those are already on the billboards. I would say um, I, I don't want to be cliche, so I would just say like, play within your means. I think there's just too many people playing games that they can't afford, um, and too many people going broke that way in poker. You know, so I would say play within your means or play below your means. Just the way I would tell someone to live, you know, you don't have to shoot the moon on on every session. Um, so, you know, I know guys that have big bankrolls that play two, five, no limit because the game is so soft and they, but they have no shame. I mean, are they back? They're not back in the high limit area, like shooting the shit with everybody else, but you know, they're grinding it out, making a living. So yeah, I, I would say definitely play within your means or below it. That's a good one, man. Have you ever strongly believed something about poker only to reverse course later on? And if so, what led to that belief change? I think thinking of poker as a zero sum game is something that people do early on. Um, especially with cause you're, me growing up with the money, like I said, the moneymaker effect, in, you know, 2005, it's, it's like, let's get all the chips and let's play the biggest games possible and let's win the biggest pots possible. Um, over time, I think that's changed to, you know, let's take it session by session um, and uh, law of averages will kind of take care of itself. Um, so it's not a zero, a zero sum game. It's a long game. It lasts yeah. until I guess our last day. Um, yeah, you're to last to your to your last breath, I guess. I don't know. So, <laughs> <laughs> do you have any projects you're working on right now that are near dear to your heart? Honestly, you know that company I brought up before, I think, is doing a lot of really good things. Um, and I've never like angel invested in a company like that before, and it wasn't like I put a ton of money into it. Um, but I'd really like to see them succeed. You know, and they're they're raising mo even more money now and they have a pilot program with a hospital uh, down here. So, you know, that's something that like I'm closely following and hoping that, um, hoping that they take it to the next step. Cool, man. That's gotta be fun. Angel investing and seeing, seeing what happens. Yeah, it's definitely a gamble, but what isn't? So every, everything is, um, <laughs> Final question, where can sure. the Chasing Poker Greatness audience find you on the World Wide Web? On the World Wide Web, I guess if you Google Jordan Zucker Poker, just like anyone else, you're going to find uh, a small hand and mob uh, thing with some very limited tournament results because I didn't don't i just flat out do we have a do we have a twitter do we have social media do we have uh, anything i mean i i'm not a twitter guy um i'm a, a facebook guy um so i i guess i'm not giving a great answer here um because as funny as much as i follow 
follow things on Twitter and click on memes and click on whatever anybody sends me. I'm not one tweet. So um, the answer is you don't. You don't get to I guess Jordan. I'm a ghost. I yeah. guess I'm a ghost out there on the internet. Um, so, you know, which is kind of the way I like it. Um, it's not a bad way to be, if I could be perfectly honest with you. That's, that's maybe the preferred way to be. Yeah, for me, it works for sure. Jordan, it's been great having you on the show. Very grateful for your time and your energy. Best of luck battling in the high stakes streets. And, you know, maybe we'll run it back with a round two sometime. Sounds good. I appreciate it, Brad. Take care, brother. Good one. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Chasing Poker Greatness. If you have yet to subscribe to the show, please take a second to do so on Apple Podcasts or wherever your favorite place to listen to podcasts may be. For more content from me, Coach Brad, please visit our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash enhance your edge, and I'll see you next time.